there's a certain way these things start. This first episode is about beginnings of all kinds. Hi, Ashley. Hi, Bill. Hi, everyone. Oh, Peter, you're muted. Hello, Bill. Bill is here. It's so exciting. I see. Oh, good to see you, Bill. I first met with the staff of the Arts Club Theater in November 2020 via Zoom. Oh, my God. Bill on camera. I know. I'm so live. (laughs) Well, that was worth the price of admission. They're referring to Bill Millard, former artistic director of the company. And this is Ashley Corcoran his successor and current artistic director of the company. She and I are dear friends. Hi, everyone. Michelle, I don't know if, if you know if we're waiting for more people or if we should... It's always awkward to start a Zoom thing. Do you know, Michelle? Ashley's about to introduce me. I'm Andrew Kushner, by the way. I'm a playwright, actor, and director based in Toronto. And for those not in the know, the Arts Club is the largest urban theatre company in Canada, situated in beautiful Vancouver, British Columbia. These are the unceded lands of the Coast Salish peoples, Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Lands that have been and continue to be the site of Indigenous lives for over 10,000 years and counting. And the Arts Club theatre has only been around for the last 57 of them. From its modest beginnings in the attic of a former gospel hall in what was once a rough and boisterous part of town, the company would go on to manage a budget of over $16 million just before the global pandemic hit. 250,000 people were attending shows annually in a metro area population of only 2.58 million. I'd been approached to create a podcast looking at the theatre company's history kinds of podcasts would be interesting for our audience to engage with and what kinds of podcasts do we like and uh, there was a lot of energy around the idea of doing like an investigative podcast so if you listen so to more like, specifically an investigative podcast looking at the company's history like serial or the daily or radio lab so like the top 10 most downloaded podcasts Not exactly where the brain goes when you think about the history of a theatre company, a mainstream Canadian regional theatre company. Unless, of course, I was going to discover... a murder? (coughs) Don't worry, there's no murder. What I really love about this kind of form of podcast is when an investigative journalist really digs into a story and starts to go down a wormhole. Wormhole? A Canadian theatre history wormhole. At the time, I remember thinking, is that actually a thing for the average person? A friend of mine made a joke after I got this gig that if all else fails, my Canadian theatre history podcast could become a popular sleep aid series, like Nothing Much Happens, Bedtime Stories for Grown-Ups, or Game of Drones. Yeah, Game of Drones. Ha ha. And I thought that instead of just hiring an investigative journalist, we should hire a theatre artist. And one from Toronto, like me, because as Ashley puts it... Someone who doesn't have a bunch of preconceived notions about who the Arts Club is, what Vancouver Playhouse was, how, like, what the environment is in this uh, I interviewed Marsha Lederman, arts writer at the Globe and Mail, and she told me that investigative reporters are often taken off of their beat after a few years because they make too many friends and lose objectivity. 
I think Ashley's theory was that an outsider like me would bring some impartiality, that I'd find what I find and tell that story. That should feel straightforward. So, why do I feel so unsettled? Because the fact is, I'm not a journalist, and I'm not a historian. I'm a theater animal. I'm in it. The cult. Which is why I imagine my heart feels pretty tangled up in this going well. For me, for the arts club, for theater in general. And I mean that. Theater is having a tough go these days. Layoffs and suspended or cancelled contracts. Theater employees who've had their positions terminated. So many stories on pause. Or worse. And I worry about it all the time. I worry about our artists. I worry about our audiences. I worry about the habits we need to kick, and there are many. But I also worry about the habits we need to restore, and there are many of those too. I worry about what we're forgetting. Like what it's like to meet in the dark. And why we like it. Do people miss the theater? Really? Do you? The theater? Do people, by and large, care if we survive? Or are those calls mostly coming from inside the house? I'm under no illusions that this podcast will go mainstream, like Serial or S-Town. So why not make it a bit unusual? When I met with the Arts Club a few months ago, I said that I'd like to think of history as a verb. That history is something that we do. And that when we do history, like the way theatre people take a script and see what it means once it's spoken out loud to others, we all learn something about ourselves and what matters to us. I don't know if that approach will work or be to everyone's taste, but I hope it sustains your curiosity. I know I'm going to miss things that are important to some of you. I know my wormholes will be particular to my worms. But I trust that you'll detect the big thing I'm looking for. Hope for the theatre. Hope in hard times. Hope that takes many forms, including sometimes wrestling with the hard bits of history as much as the beautiful ones. Hope that comes with listening to a bigger cast of players and perspectives than the official record would have you know about. I will say, the work of these past months, engaging with the Arts Club's history, has been anything but a sleep aid for me. In fact, quite the contrary. It's been keeping me up at night. This series is not a eulogy, it's not a legacy project or promotional piece, it's not the careful work of a historian or journalist. And it's not a walk down memory lane, either. This is something else. Let's play the theme song. one is called The Opening Chord. I'm not going to start at the beginning. I'm not even going to start at the Arts Club. 
they had had some trouble with his daughter that she had in their mind gone awry by you know going to Vancouver and this is actor you know, Nikki you know Lipman I mean? getting getting in with a bad crowd and all of that I mean bearing in mind that this was the the time of of everybody smoking dope and LSD. And She's describing to me what inspired the play Grass and Wild Strawberries, one that she starred in back in 1969. It was performed at the now-defunct Vancouver Playhouse, which at the time was the regional theater in Vancouver. I think it was very exciting because it was one of the first times that people in a city came to, to a play because the play was about them. Uh, hmm. You know, I mean, that's why people went to see Shakespeare, because the plays were about them. George Riga's Grass and Wild Strawberries grabbed my attention early on in my researching the 60s and the advent of professional theatre in Vancouver. Kids and drugs and psychedelics and rock and roll. and Yeah, partly because of that, and because the actual run of the show was one that one might call an event. It was a hit. They did very well. This is historian James Barber on Riga's play. I didn't see it, but I heard that uh, they had 130% audience success. The reason being that season's ticket holders were leaving or canceling their tickets because of what they heard. You know, the the people were taking um, marijuana. Uh, There was hippies there. Rock and roll music was too loud. So they were canceling seats, which the Playhouse promptly resold. So... Scandal sells. Now, two years earlier, playwright George Riga had another major event on his hands. The Ecstasy of Rita Joe premiered in 1967 at the Playhouse and became what theatre historian Jerry Wasserman would call the birth of modern Canadian theatre. Joy Coghill, artistic director at the Playhouse at the time, wanted Riga to keep writing. She match-made a collaboration between the playwright and this band called The Collectors, who would one day become Chilliwack. You know, gone, 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 she been gone so long, she been gone, gone, gone so long. Chilliwack. My girl! I think that's even in the key. Riga wrote a play that, in his words, was, quote, primarily an attempt to understand the developing crises of attitudes between generations. Juicy. He didn't say juicy. I added that. Part play, part concert, Grass and Wild Strawberries opened with the following lines. Quote, The time is now. On a crisscrossed planet where impossible cities claw at the clouds, and people fearful of suffocation by debris and sludge of their making devise incredible confidence in sophisticated machinery to assume... (laughs) Oh, George Riga, that's a long sentence. Devise incredible confidence in sophisticated machinery to assure them life is not passing. A bit prescient, if you ask me. I mean, it's 1969, and it's like he's talking about all the big glass condos and Facebook. James Barber in the province wrote in his review, quote, It is a beautiful experience, an exhausting one and a long one, but a necessary one, unless you want to sit with your head under the blankets till the world blows up. Christopher Defoe in the Vancouver Sun was a little less taken by the play. He wrote, quote, 
The Riga work, which deals with the by now familiar problems of modern youth, languishes like Jonah within an electronic whale. Okay, so he didn't love it. Quote, After each interval, you look forlornly at the doors leading to the open air and then turn, groan inwardly, and return to the hall for further abuse. Yeah, that's... He wrote that. And I wish I could say it ended there, but, quote, For grass and wild strawberries, the playhouse has been converted into a sort of modern torture chamber. The victim does not perish, of course, but there are moments during those long hours when he tends to wish the blows were deadly. The silence that descends when it is all over is like the peace that comes when the dentist stops drilling. So might that be the worst review I've ever read? Ever? I grew up. I grew up mostly communally with my mom and my stepdad. We lived, you know. Karen Fair grew up in 1960s Vancouver. Vancouver. She would go on to stage manage dozens and dozens of shows at the Arts Club over the years. More on that later. So even with my my mom and my uh, stepfather, um, they would take us to theater as well. So my whole life, really, I've you know, I've. I've been connected to theater and exposed to theater. And, uh, yeah. By commune, do you mean there were multiple families in one household? Yeah. A hippie commune. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Late 60s, Um, early 70s. So were you seeing theater in the 60s in Vancouver? I was. Okay. Well, this Mm -hmm. begs the question. Did you see Grass and Wild Strawberries? (laughs) I did. (laughs) (laughs) Can you tell me about it? Yeah. So my parents took me to see it. Um, it was at the Playhouse. You know, at at the time, I you know I didn't really focus on what the theater was, but I just have a real sense memory of of the light. You know, the sound, the energy. It was huge. It was just huge. There's a man in a cradle, a lion on his back. Rings of the moon, but it won't lie back. No, it won't. And forgive me if this. This, you know, this isn't quite the right way of framing it, but are your parents part of the counterculture? Yes. And so in 1968, how old are you? Um, eight. So you went to see Grass and Wild Strawberries at eight years of age. Yeah, I was eight or nine because it was 1969, um, the play, I think. And were there any other kids in that audience? I don't remember. I mean, uh, my brother, <laughs> my brother yeah. who is a year younger. <laughs> uh, allegedly, there was an RSCMP officer posted at the back of the theater every night. <laughs> was there really? <laughs> yeah, I guess there was a lot of pot smoke in that building for yeah. uh, for the duration of that run. I'm sure that and much more. This is me speaking with actor Nikki Lipman again. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's rare. It's rare to know that you're part of a historic moment. I mean, I knew that afterwards. I mean, yeah. I had a sense of it, I, and I had a sense that I was part of a, a movement at that time. What was happening inside the Queen Elizabeth Theatre Complex, where the Vancouver Playhouse was producing its work, was nothing short of a cultural face-off. Inside the brand new and fancy establishment theatre, a multi-million purpose-built civic auditorium where to attend you'd often wear your Sunday best, The anti-establishment had shifted the space, they had shifted the volume, and frankly, they had shifted the air quality. Patrons stormed out, and hippies filled their seats. 
with their kids. This is a, a group of society, and it's not a racial group. This is as, as of their own choice, who chose to drop out of society onto society. This is Vancouver Mayor Tom Campbell, who had some things to say about the hippies in his town at the time. They want to contribute absolutely nothing to the welfare of the community, and yet they look to us for all the services. They want to take everything and give nothing. They, they are parasites on the community. But they bought tickets to a show. Imagine all the hair in that room. And it pretty much was sold out every night. Bill Henderson, singer and guitarist of The Collectors, co-composer of the music of Grass and Wild Strawberries, and frontman for years of Chilliwack. We called them the Blue Rinse set. <laughs> and, 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 you know, on the opening chord, many of them would leave because it was so loud and, and so, so, so piercing. And then they would find that the, those who stayed would find that it was all about these young people and their, their, their tra tragic uh, uh, relationship with the, the older world. As Bill talks to me, I'm so struck by this opening chord of the show. The way certain things start. Right after my call with him, I hop onto YouTube and track it down. This radical moment in the early theatre days of Vancouver. One that drives people away and pulls people close. One that exacerbates a divide. Or perhaps brings strangers together in an unlikely way. One that shifts the power. I imagine those so-called conservative folks who walked out, and then I imagine those who stayed. The ones who found themselves sitting next to Karen Fair and her parents. Is theater capable of these things anymore? Surely, yes. How aware were you that you were in a provocative piece of work? Very much, yeah. We, we were doing, it was like uh, wake up people, you know, there's, there's more to life than, than we've been uh told exists right there's it's it's deeper it's bigger and you know uh of course if you if you um i hate to say it but you know if you have been living a very measured and very contained life and you uh take some mescaline you're gonna see a whole other world that you didn't know existed and we all know the tragedy of that we all know the tragedy of the drugs but let me tell you there is more going on than we know, than we generally see. There are some people who see more than others, too, you know, in life. Um, and, and again, He is casting a spell, to, and to I'm surrendering to it. Because it sounds to me like he's talking about the possibilities of theater. When you, when you relax and you're not under the gun and you're not doing your taxes and you're not, you know, being told you have to work twice as fast and get paid half as much, um, when you're not stressed, when you're really open, there is a beautiful life there just right in you, right in your body, right in the place where you are. And it's very deep and it keeps going and it's really, really deep. And so... That's what was, people were trying to make that point. Joy Coghill's radical programming, Riga's story, and the collector's psychedelic music had brought to a head a long-standing tension in Vancouver. The city had to reckon with its conservatism, forms of colonial hangover, and who and what our arts institutions should reflect and include. I don't know if Grass and Wild Strawberries was a good piece of art, 
but it's exciting to think that a play, yes, a piece of theater, could be at the center of such a big social story. There was blowback, of course. Grass and Wild Strawberries, for all of its blockbuster box office, would eventually result in the cancelling of Riga's next premiere. Riga accused the Playhouse's conservative board of harassment, obstructions, intimidation, and censorship, and publicly stated that the whole thing had, quote, the stench of McCarthyism to it, unquote. The company's artistic director at the time, David Gardner, would resign in solidarity with Riga. I think back to that exchange with Nikki. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's rare. It's rare to know that you're part of a historic moment. I mean, I knew that afterwards. I mean, yeah. I had a sense of it. I and I had a sense that I was part of a a movement at that time. I felt I was part of the zeitgeist. You know what I mean? I felt I was part of the movement at the time, and. That I was lucky to have escaped the life of a, you know, a nice Jewish girl from Carisdale. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but I, I didn't. I, I felt that I was very lucky. Act two, fight for beauty. 1.0. I went to meet her like a month before she died in her apartment. This is Katrina Dunn speaking. She's the former artistic director of Vancouver's Touchstone Theatre and co-founder of the Push Festival. And now she teaches at the U of M in Winnipeg. She dedicated her doctoral dissertation to Joy Coghill, the Vancouver Playhouse artistic director I mentioned moments ago. That's who she's talking about here and how Joy was processing the playhouse going out of business, which happened in 2012. She had a caretaker there. Uh, She was in fragile health. She wasn't interested in talking about the past, but um, she wanted me to go with her to the Vancouver Playhouse, and she wanted to chain ourselves to the door. And um, she was still very fiercely committed to this idea that the um, playhouse had been taken away, that it was unjust, that it should always have been the theater community's resource. And that, you know, and she actually, she talked about Winnipeg. She said people in Winnipeg, they fight for what they want. They put themselves on the line. And she was like, let's go. I was like, we can't do that. <laughs> I have kids. You're really old. Like, <laughs> um, but the idea that she wanted to, and that I thought we were going to sit politely and drink tea and talk about the past, and it just turned out to be like not at all the conversation that I thought I was going to have. It blew me away. Um, you know, she was a mover and a shaker. This act of the episode is about a fight for beauty in Vancouver. The one that created the bedrock for professional Canadian theatre and culture in the city. And it was against the odds. And I think as much as we might all complain about the difficulties that we encounter as artists, um, it, it, it 
it pales in comparison to what some of those people who laid the initial groundwork of professional theater in this city when there was none. I'm not sure that it was any more extreme than other cities in Canada, so I won't say it was. But when it came to advancing, let alone pushing the cultural envelope, Vancouver's authorities and business elites were a hard no for quite some time. There are theories around this conservatism, which took the form of the city's draconian drinking laws and its notable cases of cultural censorship. And in the 60s, it felt quite embodied in the character of the chief city licensing officer, this guy named Milt Harrell, who liberally enforced obscure obscenity and gross misconduct laws. When asked by reporters how Harrell defined gross misconduct, he said, quote, common sense. He was a censor, yeah. He had the power to shut down the show, and he did. Yeah, yeah. Here's historian James Hoffman again. He tells me that men like Milt Harrell were building on a storied legacy of censoring theatre in Vancouver. Yes, we know there were some famous um, cases of censorship in Vancouver. And perhaps one of them were famous being um, Everyman, Sydney Risks Everyman Theatre, doing Tobacco Road, where the police actually walked on stage and arrested, made an arrest, and took half the cast away. That's the night in Vancouver theatre I'd love to have been at. But they were, that, that wasn't the only case either, by the way. Our favorite Vancouver Sun theatre critic, Christopher Defoe, in his column, would openly rail against the businessmen he'd meet at galas in the city. It seemed that the captains of industry thought little of the arts, and even less about funding them. There was a real pay-your-way attitude. If the arts were so socially important, these guys thought, why were they asking for handouts? No fun city, no fun city. Everything is shitty and no fun city. No fun city, no fun city. Everything is shitty and no fun city. I know it's a tired trope. I know. But I'm telling you, Vancouver in the 50s and early 60s, when we look at those with money and power, seemed bent on a no fun city. But there were people taking that on, and from what I can tell, it's really the women of Vancouver who pulled it off. And just not taking no for an answer, and finding a workaround and pushing it through anyway. That's the, that's the real, when you kind of look at the documents and you kind of go, oh my god, there's no's all over the place. There's a no from every direction, and still, they found ways to do it. I've done a little bit of research. One of the things um, about Winnipeg is that there aren't street trees in Winnipeg. And uh, you mean like, you know, like trees that are planted right on the street that kind of uh, frame it. And one of the things that I've studied is that group of quote unquote housewives are a big reason why Vancouver has all these street trees. Because they sort of, you know, were thinking forward to the future of a city and thinking about what trees do. Just looking at the legacy of this women's work um, that has had um, such rich and resonant um, imp- implications for many of us and, and acknowledging that with names and, um, you know, writing it down. And I think that's important work. Joy Coghill. Dorothy Somerset, Jesse Richardson, Dorothy Davies, so many other names, so many other women, and among them, Yvonne Firkins. I went fairly frequently to this 
fascinating place. And one day, a lady stood up and she said, I'm Yvonne Ferkins, and I'm thinking of starting a small theater upstairs. And I just thought, wow, how wonderful. Um, and then she said, now I'd be interested to know which of you would like to help. So I shot up my hand immediately, and she said, fine. That's Sheila Cox, and she was in the room where it happened. The room where it happened. The room where it happened. I couldn't believe it. I shot up my hand immediately. And, and uh, you know, I, mean, I just thought, oh, I, I'm going to be able to do something again. And, 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 you know, I had a big smile on my face. It was an exceptional thing that I could actually do something again. She's speaking of what transpired at some point in 1962, we couldn't remember the date, at 1181 Seymour Street, a members-only watering hole, which was one of the few ways folks could get a drink on in no-fun 50s van. It was called the Arts Club. Sheila, who had trained as an occupational therapist in England, had moved to Canada in 1960 with little more than a bit of cash from her dad. I didn't have a job, but I decided I would come to Canada and I put a pin in a map of Canada and it came uh, in the middle of the Rockies. And I thought, right, well, I'll go to the nearest city, which was Vancouver. And after a few weeks of living at the YWCA, she started to seek out the things she used to love back home in Europe. And she really didn't find those things. According to Sheila, Yvonne Ferkins was feeling similarly. I think that she thought people in Vancouver were very uneducated as regards theatre. You see, there was so little theatre. Vancouver was a sort of backwater in 1960 and before. Would you say it was a conservative town? Oh, yes, definitely. And it was through stepping into the arts club and rubbing elbows with the eclectic set there, the poets, painters, actors, musicians, that she found herself in that fateful moment when a so-called spunky septuagenarian named Yvonne rallied the troops. She was a most interesting lady, not terribly tall, but dynamic. And she was fairly strong in her beliefs. Yvonne Ferkins had lost her husband recently at that time. He was a police magistrate. And from the sounds of it, Yvonne needed to stay in motion. Like water, working her way through the cracks. She had been a cultural mover and shaker for decades. She'd had a strong hand in Vancouver's Little Theatre. She was the production manager of service shows during Pacific Command during World War II. And in April 1939, in an issue of Chatelaine, Yvonne wrote an opinion piece entitled, So You're Putting on a Play, Practical Help from a Noted Director, Yvonne Ferkins. Now, I found this article completely charming, and it had some real old-timey design-on-a-dime tips, like, quote, Chain armor can be made of coarse string knitted to shape, dyed either black or brown, and painted over lightly with aluminum of silver paint. I love aluminum of silver paint. She also offers a 21-step rehearsal process. 21 steps. Step 1, reading of the entire play. Step 2, Act 1, positions and movements. Step 3, Act 1, 
Lines and Interpretation, Step 4, Act 1, Repeat 3 or 4 times. I particularly enjoy Step 12, Special Work on Weak Spots. But amidst all the shampoo bottle label type instructions, there's lots of sensible advice, clearly from someone with a deep feel for the art form. She writes, quote, The simplest play, produced with sincerity and acted by the players with all their hearts, is better than an empty spectacle, however gorgeous it may be to the sight. Do not be afraid of simplicity. So when she discovered the attic at 1181 Seymour Street, which at the time had a big crane in the middle of it to lift out car engines because, yeah, it was an auto repair shop after years of being a gospel hall, Yvonne saw a theater. And she was going to volunteer her friends and connections that they all needed to make it a reality. For the 50th anniversary of the Arts Club, James Wright, the general director of the Vancouver Opera at the time, wrote an essay commemorating the milestone. I love what he wrote. Here it goes. Since the mid-20th century, there have been so many changes in what we believe to be possible and how we live our lives. I send up praise for the thousands of women who work tirelessly to establish companies, guilds, women's committees, and galas across our continent. They were undaunted by the challenges they faced. They all willed these great organizations into existence. And then James Wright asks, The world has changed. Would we be able to harness such a priceless volunteer workforce like that today? Do our communities still contain sufficient individuals willing and able to do the hard work of cultural volunteerism? From her declaration in the bar, Yvonne Firkins managed to inspire her fellow club members and a few other outside connections to put their time and energy into building something that didn't yet exist. And she said, it's been very busy. I can't give you any money. She was a great person for saving money. But she said, I'll give you a present. And she gave me a most delightful umbrella. It is enormous. It's black and white. It was sort of like fluted at the ends of it. I mean, if ever I was in Vancouver and I put it up just as a joke, people would say, what a wonderful umbrella. Uh. <laughs> but she knew that we appreciated being there. And it was always fun. It was not... You know, I mean, the, the actors uh, and everybody, we were all in it together. And it, it didn't really matter. You were just somebody um, at the theatre. And it was a life. I just adored it. At the time, did you think you were changing your city? No. Never occurred to me. No. Did it dawn on you at a certain point that you had? No. Never. I just, I mean, I would tell my friends, I'd say, guess what happened last night? And they'd say, oh, yes. And so I would think, oh, well, they aren't interested, and they weren't. Yvonne successfully converted the attic. And by early 1964, she had configured 125 seats in the round for the theater's opening. I should mention that in her Chatelaine article, she says, quote, The central staging method is very economical, for no scenery or curtains are required. Frugality and the theatre. It's a thing. On Monday, February 3rd, 1964, she opens Light Up the Sky, a comedy by Moss Hart about putting on a show. Vancouver Sun critic Jack Richards wrote in his review, 
Quote, the opening night audience in the tiny upstairs playhouse spent most of its time crying with helpless laughter as a fine, hand-picked cast roared through the delightful comedy. So, like a considerably better review than Grass and Wild Strawberries would get five years later in The Sun. According to Richards, this experience at the theatre, which included five paid professionals and six amateurs, was like having, quote, 11 clever and uninhibited characters to a party in your home. At the end of his review, he wrote, more, more, more. It was a rave. And the show had the people of Vancouver lined up around the block. Yvonne had put something in motion, something of her own cleverness around not just the programming of the space, but her vision of civic progress. Her vision of the kind of city she wanted to live in. No more was Vancouver going to be a, quote, town in search of a city. Yvonne was going to train, she was going to educate a substantial professional theatre-going public, where no real sustainable professional theatre-going tradition had ever taken root. She had all the steps laid out for herself and the company. Step one, keep it light. Step two, draw them in. Step three, keep them coming. Step four, start introducing something new. Over two years of her stewardship through the eight fairly tame comedies that she programs, the company builds up the guts in January 1966 and the guts of its audience to take in a new edgy work called Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Yvonne never gets to see how that experiment panned out. Well, the story went around that she was on top of a ladder and it was either the first night... I don't think that would be true because she wouldn't be on on a ladder in the first night. But it was quite near the opening night of a play. In my research, I came across two stories that she allegedly had a heart attack atop a ladder, changing a light in the theater she built. Another account has her feeling very tired after a day at the theater, going home and passing away there. And I remember everybody was shocked. I'd love to write this at some point, but some of the people who laid the foundations of um, of uh, many of Vancouver's cultural infrastructures, like big things like the symphony and the opera and the, the museum and the, uh, the Vancouver Art Gallery and things like that, were quote-unquote housewives. So w- women doing philanthropic work um, who, uh, who used their positions as you know maybe wealthier maybe married to someone of influence but they labored and it was labor um, to found a lot of these organizations um, which they you know signed uh, the founding documents of as occupation housewife right yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's an amazing story i think Act 3. The Key Image When I was writing this episode about the beginning of professional theatre in a conservative town, I wanted it to feel a little bit like the 60s, which to me is like so many big ideas rubbing up against one another. 
a revolutionary and consequential time. Something with all kinds of reverberations in our present moment, if you wake up to them. Remember how I wanted to consider history as a verb? I think something that feels increasingly apparent to me is that the history you get has so much to do with who's telling it. Historian James Hoffman writes, quote, The narratives written have also been narratives hidden. End quote. So I ask him, now, you may be, you may, and I invite you to, uh, you may undo my commission, but, you know, is it problematic to, uh, to, to be looking at, you know, what would be, well, at this point is, is kind of the establishment theater in Vancouver. Um, is there a way to go about looking at a company like the Arts Club that, that doesn't replicate this kind of erasure doesn't um, perpetuate. What I'm trying to say here is this. Some people get to access their theater history and some don't. Can I pull off this podcast series about the Arts Club and not further obscure the stories of those who've been historically left out? James responds. It would be impossible. Be impossible. Yeah. They, they, they pretty well have to. They, they, they buy into so much that does involve erasure. You know, even as they're having their, their big shows, their, their rhetoric, their, their excitement, um, there's so much they're not doing, especially in, in the past. Now, it bears mentioning that this problem is not exclusive to the Arts Club. It's something that any large regional theatre in Canada or beyond contends with. And in terms of history, what he's saying is that by squarely focusing on the Arts Club, we risk losing other stories. I mean, we don't want that. How do we investigate the past in a way that captures how one company's story is wrapped up in so many others, known and lesser known? Now, I've been involved in directing, I've seen a lot of shows, I've worked in a lot of theatre companies, at university teaching, etc. And uh, you kind of think, you know, what's it all about, you know? What, what, and why do we have big hits, then forget them, and don't write about them? And, and why, why does nobody know what we're doing? You know, all this effort to make theater. And I think that comes down to uh, what I co- call um, working without an anchor. Professor Hoffman goes on to speak about how we get together. We do plays, audiences come, some shows are hits, some are misses. Companies are formed, some build buildings, those that do are usually called success stories, and those that don't build and eventually disappear, well, what of them? It's not terribly connected. As Vancouver-based Musqueam theatre maker Huelemia Sparrow put it in a CBC interview I came across, quote, I always hear that we live in such a new city, and sometimes I feel like we're hovering over the city. I think it's really good for us all to find those roots into this place. In BC, we need a, a key, what I call a key image, something to anchor us. And it, now, it may not work for everybody, but I'm, I'm thinking that might be the answer for, for British Columbia. To, to begin the conversation about being, bringing us together. So and this is where in the is, interview I think he's going to stop, you know, plopping the problem in my lap. And that includes it would be a very professory thing to do, right? Pose the question. And, and the, the question is really speaking to me. And I'm like, 
can the podcast find a key image? Hmm? And it's not just about Vancouver or BC, it's about artists and theater and how do we actually understand ourselves, our ethereal art form and what we're a part of. But what surprises me about historian James Hoffman, and I really genuinely in the interview got super, super surprised, is that he doesn't stop at the question. The guy has a key image. And the image, uh, the key image that I uh, come down to is what I call the floating stages. You're probably aware that the First Nations who first saw our, you know, our explorers like Cook and Vancouver and Mears and all Colnett and all the others that came here in boats, uh, we were called the floating people, the people on floating houses, the the, flo- the, the float, pe- the floating people, and I like that image, uh, floating people, um, and I. I found it hard to not think about those early days of contact. Okay, so this is the image for him. Floating stages. That moment of alongsidedness. Contact from a distance on the water. So I'm thinking, what if looking at the history of the Arts Club can pass through this image? Okay. Be honest. Do I sound high? Like, do I sound as though I've walked out of the uh, Grass and Wild Strawberries Auditorium? Or did I maybe look into that mescaline stuff Bill Henderson was mentioning? I have to say, James Hoffman's image is making sense to me. What do we get if we look at history less through one set of events and more through a set of relationships? As activist Janaya Khan says, it's not just what you stand for. It's who you sit with. I want to anchor this idea, so to speak. I want to make appreciable how much was going on in Vancouver's theatre scene in the 60s and early 70s. Big change. And you've got the Arts Club, but who else was on the water? And how were their ideas part of this very exciting, formative time? This is Donna Wong. From this perspective... I would say I've learned through my life that there's nothing new on earth. (laughs) Everything is a repeat from something in the past, um, including when we were doing what we thought was not revolutionary, but the the word used not then, but now is like cutting edge or, you know, we just sort of said alternative. This is an alternative of what's happening now, okay? Donna Wong Giuliani is the surviving half of a small company called Savage God. Savage God came down the hill from Simon Fraser University in the late 60s and only produced work regularly into the early 70s. When I ask people about it in interviews, most people tell me, yeah, I heard of them, never saw one of their shows, but I know the name. And it's a good name. Savage God is in reference to the imagination, to quote its founder, John Giuliani. He said, the notion of a lightning bolt that simultaneously endangers and illuminates. Nikki Lipman told me that in the 60s in Vancouver, quote, Savage God was the yeast. For John Giuliani, theater was to be low cost and deeply imaginative. In his program notes and manifestos, he wrote extensively. He said, quote, relevancy in the theater is shock, the shock of new ideas, of sudden insights and of shattered preconceptions. He said, quote, it's controversial. One has to decide within five minutes of entering the auditorium whether or not one is going to stay. 
This sounds like the antithesis of Yvonne Ferkins, right? It sounds like for John Giuliani, it was step one, electrocute the audience. But I don't think it was altogether different. The likes of John and Yvonne wanted to turn their city onto theatre, and for theatre to matter in ways that it hadn't. And maybe even a more fundamental goal. They wanted to build a community. Savage God did weird stuff. But it was beautiful weird stuff. I asked Donna about the Savage God show, A Celebration, which took place in the Vancouver Art Gallery. I find the premise of that show completely heartwarming. Picture it. John Giuliani says to Donna Wong, after years of being a couple... He said, you know what, why don't we get married? I said, what do you mean? <laughs> like, wow, or what? And he said, well, remember, we're all hippies. We're all doing things counterculture. We don't, not in a church, not in the church down the street, Christchurch Cathedral. Let's just do it here at the art gallery. Let's make a marriage ceremony. I love that. I love that idea. And we put together this whole wonderful ceremonial thing where people came. We invited people to a celebration as part of the season. So there was this play, that play, and something called a celebration. And, and many people didn't know they were coming to a real wedding. Fabulous. Theatre historian and critic Malcolm Page noted at the time, quote, Suddenly I realized it was for real. John Giuliani was marrying Donna Wong and art had become life. Theatrical illusion had become reality. Well, people got wind of it. And when we finished this two-hour production, there were a whole bunch of people lined up along uh, Georgia Street to, 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 to get in. And so John looks out and he says, there's a whole audience there. Hey, you guys, do you want to do this again? And we're going, yeah, yeah, let's do it again. So he puts his head out and doors. He says, we're going to do it in another half hour if you want to stay around. So we did two perform. We did two, two, two ceremonies in one day. We did the whole thing again. The next day in the Vancouver Sun and Province, there were these huge articles. And I think one of the bylines was um, art and life intersect or something like the intersection of life and art. The audiences for Savage God were young and they were thinking about theatre as something that belonged to them. Something that anyone could and should access. Like books in a library. George Riga around Grass and Wild Strawberries said in an interview, quote, We were edging toward the possibility of a people's theatre. People were no longer going to be force-fed proper culture. Folks like Milt Harrell, that chief licensing officer I told you about, they were going to be vanquished. And in the 60s, theatre was on the front lines of that battle. Whatever it is, how do I, how can I connect with you is basically what it's about. Yeah. And, and, and so to flip it right back, and I'm really picking up on, on, on John's heels or tail about things, is like if it's free, then it's not a kind of a, a commercial transactional uh, act that we're doing. I pay you, you give me this, right? It's, it's more like um, kind of together getting to the heart of something that's meaningful for me and hopefully meaningful for you. In one of their more overt moments of advocacy, John and Donna released the Free Theatre Report in 1971. It wasn't saying that the establishment needed burning down. It was saying that a parallel space and parallel funding needed to exist for a free theatre in Canada. When I speak with her, 
Donna tells me that for the first time in nearly 50 years, she's pulled down the original copy of the report from her bookshelf. You've made me open this thing, which I haven't, like, it's amazing. It's, it's quite amazing, actually. I have, there's charts and documents. I, we, we kept track of everything, not just audience, but the, I mean, I, this is a very thorough research paper. He could have gotten a doctorate on this one, for sure. <laughs> And I remember typing every bloody word of it. <laughs> yeah. Back in the day when you couldn't just hit backspace on the computer. Right? Totally, yeah, yeah. She reads from the introduction to me and the hair goes up on my arms. It's, like I said before, what theatre people do. Taking a script and seeing what it means once it's spoken aloud to others. We learn something about ourselves and what matters to us. If given an opportunity, develop an alternative that is truly distinct and in all connotations free. Free of the physical structures that perpetuate the dichotomy between performer and public. Free of the formality that canonizes passivity and propriety at the expense of When we look at where we are now, the big questions we're turning over in the theatre. Existential questions. The anchors we may be craving on the choppy waters, these days especially. It's shocking to hear Donna read her own typing and how the past can speak to the present. Free of the delusions of untouchability that impede an immediate and direct retrieval of audience feedback. There's your thing there. Free of the mystification of the artistic process that places a premium on technical expertise and specialization. Free of the restrictions, financial, social, and psychological, that make the theatre-going experience inaccessible, uninviting, and intimidating to the average theatre taxpayer. These were the ideas swirling around Vancouver in the 60s. They were swirling in the air and in the water. I don't know if it has something to do with distance, me reaching back 50 years, or me reaching across a continent and over the mountains. But distance helps you hear things, see things. Not least of which, how remarkable those early artists and founders were. The vision they had for themselves and for us. Free of the sense of perspective that makes iconoclasm a sacrilege and mere sacrilege a beatific vision. He's, he loved writing. And free of the immenseness, inflexibility, and imitativeness that stifles the cultivation of any indigenous dramatic tradition. There you go. And it goes on. But, but that's, I mean, yeah, just, just reading his introduction. There's a certain way these things start. I hope you'll keep joining me. By the way, one last thing about grass and wild strawberries at the Playhouse. I know, I'm a bit obsessed. Kids and drugs and psychedelics and rock and roll and all of that. I forgot to mention that the stage manager for that production, the guy making sure the hippies were making their curtain on time, the guy who called the first sound cue, that chord, every night from the stage manager's booth, was a young man by the name of Bill Millard. The man who would go on to become the artistic director of the Arts Club for 46 years. That's where we're headed. Next episode. This is Something Else is produced by the Arts Club Theatre. It's been written, directed, and hosted by yours truly, Andrew Kushner. 
My podcast assistant with research dramaturgy and EDI is Priti Daliwal. Sound design and editing by Kevin Galt. Original music by The Golden Age of Wrestling. For this particular episode, a big thank you to Bill Henderson, Karen Fair, James Hoffman, Katrina Dunn, Nikki Lippman, Sheila Cox, Malcolm Page for his writing on Savage God, and Donna Wong. Ashley Corcoran, Artistic Director of the Arts Club Theatre Company. And I'm Peter Cathy Watt, the Executive Director at the Arts Club. This is something else. Consciously Eclectic Histories of the Arts Club is generously supported by ITC Construction Group, BMO Financial Group, KPMG, BFL Canada, and longtime patron Lee Girls. We would also like to thank the Canada Council for the Arts, the BC Arts Council, and the City of Vancouver for their ongoing support. And of course, it goes without saying that not just this podcast, but every production created by the Arts Club requires collaboration and teamwork across our organization. From our development team that connects with our amazing donors and community partners, allowing us the opportunity to fund projects such as this, to our marketing and guest services departments that ensure our audiences are able to access the work, to our admin and finance department that supports all of our activities, and to our production department, who learned a whole new way of creating great art in order to record and prepare these podcasts. To our artistic department, who welcomes and hosts the incredible freelance artists with whom we are so lucky to collaborate with. And to our education department, that finds innovative ways to connect our audiences with the content we are creating. We are so grateful to work with the passionate, curious, and determined staff at the Arts Club. This is truly a collaborative effort that takes people and resources and, of course, the support from donors and subscribers. People like you. If you've liked what you've heard and are interested in supporting more new works and local artists at the Arts Club, please visit artsclub.com and consider making a tax-deductible gift.